Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, May 27th, we are studying Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Throughout history, God has shown his mercy to both Jew and Gentile. What does that mean for the Christian life of discipleship? St. Paul turns a major corner in his, in his epistle here as he expounds upon that question. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Reverend Dr. Ryan Tinetti. Pastor Tinetti serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tinetti, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much, Pastor Apple. It's great to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Tinetti, give us the big picture in the letter to the Romans. This is one of those major turning points in the epistle. What has Paul been doing, and what's the turn he makes here? Yeah, that's right. So in the letter to the Romans, um, generally, it kind of breaks up into some big pieces, um, especially you could look at the first four chapters or so, and then chapters five through eight, and then chapters nine through 11. So the first four chapters really laying out um, God's purposes in justification in and through Christ uh, for both Jew and Gentile. Chapters five through eight turn and talk um, even more explicitly in terms of uh, how we are united with Christ, especially through the gift of holy baptism and the free gift of, of Christ. And then you know, there's that beautiful chapter eight that just climaxes with that wonderful, you know, nothing will separate us from God's love. In chapters 9 through 11, um, Paul really uh, drills down on this theme of Jew and Gentile. What are What is God's purpose for um, his Old Testament people, what we would call his Old Testament people? And really, it ultimately all drives to his mercy. So we saw at the end of chapter 11, you know, uh, God is um, consigning all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Uh, mercy gets the last word, and then, you know, he goes into that exultant doxology at the end of chapter 11. So suffice it to say, for those first 11 chapters, it's been law and gospel, but the main focus of the message has been that the gospel carries the day, that Christ has the victory, and that we have received this mercy of God. And now in chapter 12, like you say, it's a huge hinge point for the rest of the book, where um, Paul's going to turn more explicitly to um, what we might call sanctification, the life of discipleship. How do we live in light of God's mercy? And I'm just thrilled to be with you on this section today. It's a marvelous section of the letter to the Romans, indeed in the whole New Testament, and really conveys that sense of how discipleship, the life of faith, happens as a response and as a result of what God has already given to us in Christ. Before we dig into the text, define just a couple terms for us. You mentioned the term discipleship. You mentioned the term sanctification. Define both of those for us as we go forward into this text. Yeah, thanks. I, a lot of times we can use um, these words, and they're not jargon per se, but they're certainly a more specialized vocabulary for the church and for theology. So um, sanctification is, literally means to be made holy. It's the, the growth in holiness, or um, to use words from the Paul's letter to the Romans, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. 
And um, this is something that, in a sense, happens um, right when we are justified. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you've been justified, you have been sanctified. It's a past action, but it's also a progression. So in this life, we are growing more and more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And so it's that growth and holiness. It's what's happening on the inside. Discipleship. Um, has similarities when we talk about sanctification, but maybe it's a, a broader term to talk about our life as disciples. And a, a disciple is simply a learner. Um, not necessarily a learner in the sense of a classroom, but more like what we see with the disciples, with Jesus' followers in the Gospels. It's, it's people who are apprenticed to the Lord Jesus and are following in his footsteps, striving to listen to him and to do as he does and to, to live as he lived and to show his mercy to others as he showed mercy to us. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some overlap there, but um, a little nuanced uh, difference as well. And both of those are going to be present here in the text. In Romans chapter 12, we'll go ahead and read it and jump right in. Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the text for today, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So, Pastor, today, the word therefore, which is one, two, three, the fifth word in the, in verse one in, in English is, is that hinge point. I appeal to you, therefore brothers by the mercies of God. And that, that word mercy is a key word too. You brought up verse 32 in the previous chapter. That's, it seems, I mean, you've got that doxology verses 33 through 36, but it's like Paul put that in praises God for all this mercy. And now he's picking up with that word mercy here again in verse one. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like at the end of, of chapter 11, it's like, and scene, boom. And, uh, you know, the curtain <laughs> falls and then it opens up again. The curtain lifts as we move into chapter 12. And as you rightly say, I appeal to you, therefore. So that therefore is, is doing a lot of work there. And um, I often say in my Bible studies and Pastor Apple, I'm sure you say the same thing. Whenever we see therefore, we need to ask, what's it there for? Right. And uh, here it's really, as, as we've said, it's, it's this hinge point for the whole letter. As now Paul is going to turn the corner and say, okay, guys, so in view of this mercy of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. 
And I should note that the word for mercies here is different than the word for mercy at the end of, of uh, chapter 11, although they share a, a similar semantic field, to use a technical term. They're in the same family of, of meaning of, of words. But in some ways, it's even more profound because the Greek word oiktirmon um, is used often in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, to describe those mercies of God. So you think of um, the famous self-descriptors of God that in Exodus 13. And elsewhere, um, the Lord, um, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, um, that mercy of God, that steadfast love of God would have been prayed over and recited by, especially by Jewish Christians um, and, and proselytes, those who had been uh, had come into the faith, they would have prayed and heard those words over and over and over again. In view of God's oiktirmon, his mercies, Paul says, now present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so we really want to to see this move at the beginning of chapter 12 to be Paul saying, look guys, all I'm going to tell you from here on out should be taken in view of all that God has done for you. That's the proper way to understand it. Right. That 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 verse, by the mercies of God, or that phrase, by the mercies of God, really found forms the foundation for the rest of this epistle. I've full disclosure I've, I've recorded a few segments already after this text in the letter to the Romans and and every one of the guests brings this up. We need to go back yeah. to 12 verse 1 that, yeah. that everything that Paul says about sanctification and discipleship is founded upon the mercies of God that he's laid out in chapters 1 through 11. And and we need to keep that foundation so that we don't confuse, again, to use a bit more jargon, I'll let you, you explain a little bit, so we don't confuse justification and sanctification, or so we don't, uh, pro- so, that we, so that we properly distinguish law and gospel, we need to keep this verse central for everything we're going to read through the rest of the letter. Yeah, and I think, um, well, we can, we might think of it this way. So, well, imagine, what are some of the other options for Paul there to say, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. He doesn't say, by God's judgments. He doesn't say, you know, with, with fear and trembling. That's language he'll use in other kind of contexts. But when he's talking right here, he wants to base it on the mercies of God, which is to say on his free forgiveness, his unconditional care and compassion for you and me, or as one author has put it, his one-way love for us. And I, the most natural analogy is in terms of our families and our relationships with our parents. And for um, parents and with their children, there is at base, or there ought to be at base, this unconditional love and care and acceptance for their children, right? They love them because, simply and solely because they are their own, right? And everything else then um, flows out of that. The fact that my son exists, you know, in a sense is uh, itself a gracious gift um, for him and for me, frankly. But um, for him, it's recognizing, okay, there is this foundational love and care of which I am born. And so the rest of my life of obedience, you know, you can imagine how these conversations go all the time with an 11-year-old. But the rest of my life of obedience comes in response to this love and, and grace that I have received and, um, from my parents. Of course, it's an imperfect analogy because parents are imperfect people as well as the kids. But the idea is that everything is, is founded upon that mercy of God. It's not placing us in a position where now our status is dependent on our performance. Paul isn't saying, all right, now let's go back to square one, okay? So I've talked a lot about how God's good, but let's talk about how you're going to be good. 
Instead, it's here is all that God has done for you and couched in that context of his compassion, how are you going to, to live in response? And it makes all the difference in the world. It might sound like a, a subtle nuance, but in actual practice in our lives, it makes all the difference to know I am loved, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven in Christ. Therefore, I can go forward boldly, striving to live after God's will, knowing I'm going to fail, but that he's always there to pick me up and send me out again. It really does make all the difference, particularly in, in practice. Talking about it on a radio show, perhaps, it, it seems a bit, well, that, that seems nuanced. But when, when it comes into the Christian life, it's, it's a huge deal. And so this, this foundation of the mercy of God, Paul says, the first thing he, he appeals to his brothers to do is to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. And that, <clears throat> I've actually got it circled in my, my Bible here, living sacrifice it seems really weird, because sacrifices are supposed to be dead. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. It's this, it's this paradoxical statement, and um, surely Paul's trying to, if he doesn't already have the attention of his readers or listeners, um, to grab it right there. Wait a second, Paul. Living sacrifice. Uh, but that's just it. Because our lives are taken up into the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ Jesus, who not only died but rose again, now we are able to offer a living Sacrifice, yes, full weight on that paradox, it, that we are, are offering ourselves up, and the language that he uses is very much reminiscent of the Old Testament, think of the book of Leviticus and elsewhere, of that presentation. You're, you're presenting your body, your life, your whole being as a living sacrifice. Now, I think it's important, too, though, to make a, a distinction here when we talk about sacrifice, and I alluded to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. So in, um, you might think of it as two kinds of, of sacrifices. On the one hand, you have Christ Jesus and his sacrifice, and that is the one and only unique atoning sacrifice. So Jesus' work upon the cross on our behalf is, is one of a kind, not to be repeated, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3. This is the, the only foundation that can be laid, is the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Our sacrifices... Um, if you will, lowercase s sacrifices, are um, what in theological parlance is called a Eucharistic sacrifice, which is to say a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The word Eucharistic comes from uh, Eucharistia, meaning thanksgiving. So these are thanksgiving sacrifices that are offered in response to the atoning sacrifice. So we want to make clear that when Paul talks about us offering ourselves as living sacrifice, it's not so that by sacrificing ourselves, we can somehow atone for our sins, or you know, at the most uh, crass level, a, a kind of penance, where if I do enough, you know, uh, if I sacrifice enough, then I'll be able to, to merit that forgiveness and, and approval of God. That's not what he's talking about at all. It's that now, a sacrifice that we make in response to his once-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sake. And, and our sacrifices of thanksgiving, the Eucharistic sacrifices that we made, are they are very much connected to the atoning sacrifice that Christ made. And I, I think that's how that Paul can call them living sacrifices. Because mm. on our own, a sacri I mean, if, if I try to make a sacrifice, like you said in a very crass way, as, a, as an act of penance, something that will earn my standing before God, that sacrifice will remain dead. But yeah. if my sacrifice of thanksgiving 
is connected to the sacrifice that Christ made and, and done not not as an attempt to earn something before God, but done simply because of what he's done for me, then that sacrifice actually becomes a living sacrifice yes. because Christ's sacrifice, he sacrificed himself, and now he is risen from the dead, never to die again. I mean, I'm, I'm tying it back into, at least what I, in my mind, I'm tying it back towards Romans 6, where Paul talks about the connection we have to Christ, his death, his resurrection, and baptism. And, and that, I mean, the idea of a living sacrifice seems to fit in very nicely with that, what he's laid out there in chapter 6. That's beautifully put, and I think you're spot on that because of our connection to Christ, and there's other biblical images that we could use here. John 15 immediately comes to mind. He is the vine, we are the branches. Our, he is the, the source of our life. Or if I could put it this way, um, you remember the, the old fable of, of King Midas and the Midas touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. Well, Jesus comes along, and our, you know, our King Jesus, and he's able to touch our dead sacrifices, our insufficient offerings, and make of them something good and use them for the purposes of, of his kingdom. You're right. In ourselves, um, we're not able to offer anything that is going to be ultimately um, um, satisfactory or pleasing to heaven, um, but instead through the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he's able to take those and, and uh, transform them, to use a word we're going to come across in a minute, um, for his purposes. And it's a, a marvelous thing. Right. So this this living sacrifice, our bodies are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We've, we've talked about that. And, and then Paul sums this up and says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, the language of sacrifice has the Old Testament overtones. This language of worship also has Old Testament overtones as well. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, the f Greek phrase here is logike latreia. And this is significant in a couple of ways. So first of all, the, the word latreia um, harkens back to an Old Testament view of, of worship as service. And it's there in the first commandment. Um, you shall have no other gods. Him only shall you serve. And so again, in that Greek uh, translation, it's latreia. Um, it's, it's that kind of um, obeisance and obedience, offering our lives, laying them down to our Savior, to our Lord. Um, but I find it interesting, and I, you can look in the different translations, what they do with this logike latreia. So in the ESV, which I think you read from and which I uh, generally use as well, it says spiritual worship. But it has a footnote, um, and many translations will do this, where it says, or your rational service, your rational service. And I think that maybe gets the wrong connotations too, but with that word logike, logike latreia, um, you can hear in there logic, right? This is where um, the, the source of our, our word logic. And so in a sense, what he's expressing is this is your logical or reasonable worship or reasonable service. This is the most natural response to what God has done for you in light of God's actions. This is what makes sense. And I think this is such an important point for us to recognize that it's not that now Paul is calling us to living sacrifices, you know, what is all this, as though this were something unreasonable or outrageous. It's just the opposite in view of God's mercies. Now, from the world's perspective, yeah, it makes no sense at all. But for the Christian, by faith, who is able to see and understand and grasp what Christ has done for them, in fact, to do anything else than to offer your life as a living sacrifice is what doesn't make sense. It's a reasonable service, a logike latreia, when we offer 
all of our lives up to God, however he would use it in our vocations, in our day-to-day lives, however he, he would use it, that's the most reasonable thing for us to do. It would make no sense in view of what Christ has done for us to do otherwise. I think that's a, a very helpful explanation that this is what makes sense. Spiritual worship as it is in the ESV, you know, translators, especially when they're putting together translations for the public to read, they have a very difficult job. And so I don't, yeah. uh, I, I try not to, to overly criticize things with right. the little Greek knowledge that I have. But but I think, I mean, in, in particular here, where it says, you're, you know, Paul said you're going to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then it's called your spiritual worship. Well, in at least in English, particularly in our context, I think when people hear spiritual worship, they're not thinking of things that happen with their bodies. Typically, mm-hmm. the word spiritual in, in our English right. language deals with things that are, or at least it's heard. It, it maybe shouldn't be heard this way, but it is often heard as things mm-hmm. that are non-physical. And, and Paul doesn't have that in mind here very clearly. He's no. talking about this is something you're doing with your body, with your whole life. And so this this response is, I like that. It's, it's what makes sense. It's what yep. follows from what Christ has done. It's not yep. something that's non-physical, but it's, it's your whole life given to the one who gave his life for you. Yep. Yep, exactly. That's, that's very well put. And uh, we might even have uh, my my bible has as the subtitle living sacrifice which is good um but really over not only these first couple verses but as we'll see with the subsequent verses uh, you could say this is about embodied discipleship right um this is about offering your body and it's about life in the body of christ as we'll see in verses three through eight so yeah this is this is what makes sense in view of the one who sacrificed his body in order to make you part of his own body so Paul then continues in verse 2 with a, a contrast, and I think we'll, we'll start picking up that contrast on this side of the break. Paul says, first on the first part, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you've got, don't be conformed, rather be transformed. Take us into the first part of that phrase on this side of the break, don't be conformed to this world. Yeah, so don't be conformed. Don't uh, allow your life, your pattern of life, simply to, to go along to get along. And this is the uh, easiest temptation for any of us is you don't get pushback from the world or indeed from our sinful flesh when we are just going along the path of least resistance, right? Um, and I think that's a, a natural thing for us to do, but I often go, uh, go back to a quote from G.K. Chesterton who said that a dead thing goes with the stream, only a living thing can go against it, okay? And so uh, he, Paul's calling us to be living sacrifices, not simply to go with the stream, but to push back against it where we need to, to recognize we are not going to be conformed to the pattern of, well, it says of this world, World, or um, the Greek word is ion. It could be otherwise translated as age. So again, the, the point isn't that body bad, spirit good. The point is um, in this age, in this time that we live in until the return of Christ, it's, uh, as he says in Galatians 1, it's the present evil age. And that would be a good gloss for what he's talking about here in verse 2 of Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this present evil age. Don't assume that if you're just going along and things are going well. There's another author by the name of Eugene Peterson who he says that um, for Christians, 
Anytime we do something that's really successful in the eyes of the world, it ought to give us pause. (laughs) His point is, if things are really successful, if we're always getting a a pat on the back and an attaboy from the world, that world is in many ways in the thrall to the evil one and is rushing along apart from the, the will and purposes of Christ. Not always, and there's much there that we would call kind of first article wisdom, which is to say the first article of the creed, that God has created all, all people have um, this, this sense of his law written on their hearts. So there's very much things that we can affirm that are good about the world and, and our present age. Don't get me wrong. But uh, we should not assume that just because things are going well for us, um, that that means, well, we must be in line with God's will. In some cases, in fact, it might be just the opposite. So this is what he's getting at when he talks about not being conformed to this world. Hmm. And we'll pick up the other half, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're going to take that break right now, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance Worldwide KFUO on the next MOA weekend. I'm going to be sharing thoughts with you about Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, right in front of his disciples. What does the ascension mean for you and me in the year 2020? As much as it did then, you bet. And it's no bet. I'll share more with you this Saturday and Sunday morning at 745 a.m. Central here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. In 1924, by the grace of God, KFUO began broadcasting the good news of Christ for you. A long part of this history is bringing you worship services to hear and receive the good gifts of God in His words. This Sunday morning, join us for services from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis at 815 and Hope Lutheran Church in St. Anne at 1045, as well as Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere at 930. Hear Christ for you in Sunday morning services on KFUO. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, May 27th. We are looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, with Reverend Dr. Ryan Tonetti of Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tonetti, prior to the break, we left off in the middle of verse 2. We said, do not be conformed to this world. And, and you, d- you described it, I think, very well as, as you know, only a, a dead thing just goes downstream. That's all a dead thing can do. Only a living thing would go upstream. And, and with that image, as we get into the matter of being transformed by the renewal of your minds, it, it seems that there's, there's either, there's, either one of these things are happening all the time. You're either being transformed by the renewal of your mind or you're being conformed to the world. There's no... I mean, I, I know what you and I, I don't think what you said about there are certainly things in the the first article of the creed, the created gifts of God that are good and can be put to use. 
but as we live in this world as Christians, either we're going to be conformed to the ways of the world or we're going to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. There's no sort of neutral ground. It, right. Is that is that true? I think no. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There's no, there's no kind of discipleship Switzerland. There's no, there's no place where we can just kind of, kind of hang out. And um, you bring to mind the words uh, of our Lord when um, he says, in I think it's in in Luke 11 when he says, "Whoever's not with me is against me." Um, mm. There's not really any gray area there. He he throws the gauntlet and says, "Look, guys, um, it's it's one way or the other." Um, and so we're constantly in that tension, in that push, where are, where are we going to go? Are we going to be um, conformed more and more to the pattern of this present age, or are we going to continually be transformed by the renewal of our mind? And really, it's nobody is uh, perfectly swimming against the stream. I mean, this is the purpose of confession. This, I mean, sin one way to describe sin in these terms, Romans 12 terms, is to say, insofar as we continue to be conformed to this world uh, and conformed to um, the pattern of our sinful nature. That's what sin is. So it's not that this never happens, but it's, the, it's recognizing, okay, that's not the way that it's supposed to be, and therefore I need to repent, confess of that, and strive to live more faithfully um, according to God's purposes. So what what is the difference then? Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. What does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? Yeah, oh, it's such a powerful phrase. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's a few things I want to, to touch on here. So um, first of all, to be transformed, he says. And uh, we want to put full weight on that passive voice there, which is to say, he doesn't say transform yourself, but instead be transformed. And it's important to recognize that passive because the actor there, the subject, is not ourselves. The subject is God. Probably more specifically, we'd say God the Holy Spirit, who is active in sanctification. So he is the Sanctus Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He sanctifies God's people. Again, your, people, your listeners might recall from the small catechism and the third article of the creed, Luther um, gives the heading sanctification. The work of the Holy Spirit is he's sanctifying us. He is transforming us. And when Paul says, be transformed, it's almost, in a sense, a kind of performative statement. By that I mean the kind of statements like when um, you or I, Pastor Apple, are, are marrying a couple. Um, we personally aren't marrying them. We're joining. Okay, you understand. Um, yes. <laughs> and we, we <laughs> say, I pronounce you husband and wife. And so through that speaking, it is done. And insofar as the Word of God is living and active, it's the instrument of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says, be ye transformed by the renewal of, of your mind, um, it's almost as though it's happening in, in the speaking of that, um, which is to say this is how the Holy Spirit works. It's through the Word of God. So be transformed. That's the, the first thing. Recognize that, that the Spirit is the actor there. The second thing is um, it's this marvelous Greek word, metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis and, and, uh, and so forth. Um, it's the same word that's used for the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17 and elsewhere uh, to describe his transfiguration. I'm not sure why we went with his 
transfiguration rather than as metamorphosis. I think it's just a matter of Latin versus Greek. But in any event, this is the same kind of thing. It's this transformation as we are being more and more uh, made unto the likeness of Christ, where we are being stripped of sin and strengthened in our sanctification. Um, and again, to go back to Romans 8, uh, 29, I think it is, when it says being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Not conformed to this world, but to be transformed is to be conformed to Jesus' likeness. And uh, another good um, parallel passage uh, along these lines would be in 2 Corinthians 3, and it speaks of how we all, with unveiled face, are, beholding, are being transformed as we behold uh, the, the glory of the Lord. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul says. So just uh, underscoring the fact that this is the work of the Spirit transforming us. And if I can say just one more thing about this then. So to, we are transformed how? By the renewal of your mind. And this is another spot where I would take just a, a little bit of um, issue with the, with the translation. Again, like you said, we always want to give translators the benefit of the doubt. It's a tough job, and uh, I'm not signing up for it. But uh, <laughs> when it says the, the renewal of your mind. So the word translated mind there is noos. And um, mind is not bad, but it's something fuller than that. It's something more akin to what we might say imagination. Okay, um, not imagination in the sense of you're thinking up fairy stories or something, but in the way of having just a view of life. C.S. Lewis said that the imagination is the organ of meaning, of being able to connect the dots from what we see, what we believe, what we know. It's this whole lens on life. This is more what Paul is talking about here. He's not just saying be renewed by the way you think about things or just, you know, your particular beliefs. That's part of it, but it's a fuller, broader vision there. Have your your whole way way of being is reoriented and renewed um, according to God's purposes and through the the work of the Spirit within you. It's being changed. It's being transformed. It's a wonderful phrase, and I, like you've said, I mean, really, in a nutshell, this is the whole work of of sanctification, indeed, of discipleship, as we're following Christ, being conformed to His likeness, having our whole way of being transformed, our whole outlook on the world. I think that that image of uh, an outlook on the world, the lens in which we see things, helps us with what we were talking about earlier when we look at the created world around us and recognize that these are gifts of God that we would put to use in service of Christ and his word rather than using them in a way that would be conformed to the world. I think that that idea of an outlook or a way of looking at things, the lens in which we see things, is a, a helpful way to, to see this. And I think it also then helps us into this last part of verse 2 as well, where Paul talks about, by testing, you would discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that this renewed way of looking at things that has transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the Word to be according to the image of Christ, then as we look upon this world where we're testing and discerning the will of God. Is that how the dots connect? Yeah, so it's, it's a real beautiful progression here. So we, we have been claimed by Christ, and we have been renewed by the Spirit. We're being transformed, and it's, a, it's an ongoing process as we're you know, through this renewal. Um, and as we do so, now we have been set into this world 
with this wide open, broad field of, of life where it's how are we going to live now? How are we going to live in this, this freedom of the spirit? And it's not um, as simple as merely saying, well, here's a, a rule for this and a rule for this and a rule for this. We have the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments, as you know, Luther expresses in the, in the Catechism, they have this kind of broad range of application. And in any particular situation, it takes that spirit-filled imagination to know what's best in this situation. How can I live faithfully? Faithfulness is an art more than a science. Right, The art of faithfulness in your vocation, in your day-to-day life, to know how is it best for me to respond? How, how can I best go forward in this way? And here I, I might use a, a kind of strange way of putting it. So this word dokamadzein is the word that's translated by testing. And dokamadzein gives, gives you the sense of it's sort of a, a trial and error. Okay, You are trying to discern carefully as, as you go about your life. And this is part of the freedom that we have in Christ because we are not, uh, we're not just strapped and, and um, totally paralyzed thinking, well, if I do this wrong, I'm going to sin and then God's not going to love me. No, we know that we are in the, the safety zone of God's forgiving love so that even when we do fail, even when we do sin, he is there to pick us back up and to forgive us. And so in a sense, the, the Christian life and, and striving to follow after God's will is a, a sort of sanctified tinkering, okay? Or we could call it Christian science, if, you know, let the hearers understand. Not in the, not in the sense of that uh, interesting religious offshoot, but in the sense that as the Christian life is trying to figure out how can we be faithful to the Lord. It's an art more than it is a science, I suppose. And so uh, maybe it's the Christian art of, of discerning and determining how can I use this freedom in Christ well in any given situation. Sometimes it's perfectly clear. Many times it's not. And that's why we need by testing to discern what God's will is um, as we go about our day-to-day lives. Mm, right. It's it's not, I mean, it's a, a tinkering in the sense that it's, but it's within the bounds of what God has given yes. us in his word. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a, just a free for all by any means right. The you right. mentioned the commandments that, that these set for us, they, they shape for us what, what a Christian life looks like, what is good in God's sight. And, and Paul will later sum it up in the word love coming up in chapter 13. And well, actually right. even, even here later, just right after this text, he's going to say, let love be genuine. So he's going to give shape to this, this will of God that, that our uh, sanctified imaginations are going to be discerning and testing. So it's not a complete free for all, but, but there is a, you know, there is, I don't, gray area is not, I don't think the right way to say it, Uh, but, but there is that, that space in which we just don't know sometimes. And, and I mean, I I don't like to, the, the pandemic is not the only example in the world, but right now, I mean, I know at least in, in my own experience as a pastor trying to figure out, What's the right way to to go about bringing the gifts of God to the people of God right now? Right. This verse helps <laughs> because it's it it's not always clear cut, and and this verse I I mean it helps gives me a lot of comfort in some of those decisions that I've been making right now. 
That's right. We we lean on God's grace. We strive to be faithful um, to the best of our ability. We're, we're acting in in faith and according to the Spirit as best as we're able. Are we going to get it right all the time? No, we're not. But again, there is forgiveness for us. But as we're striving to be faithful, I think of Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we continue to delight ourselves in the Lord, as we're being transformed by the Spirit, the desires of our heart come to align more and more with his desires and speaking for you know as pastors like you say we're we're trying to give uh deliver god's gifts to his people sometimes in in creative ways and um doing it in better and worse ways but striving to be faithful doesn't mean we're going to always get it right but that's what we're seeking to do and for god's people i mean again to just stick with where we're at right now in the midst of this pandemic what does it look like for me to be faithful right now how can i do this and we don't have a thus saith the lord on so many of these kinds of questions that people are saying you know should i do this should i do do that it's more um, we have you know big picture guiding principles and then again through the, the power of our, our sanctified imaginations and through the work of the spirit within us we seek to apply that in any given circumstance so um, yeah it's definitely not a free-for-all it's bounded by God's word it's guided by God's law but uh, free in Christ and through the spirit we have to continually be discerning by testing what his will is in a given situation. Mm-hmm. Another another bound, if you will, on, on this, I think comes up in verses 3 through 8, because so far we've been talking about sanctification, discipleship, the things that, that come about in the life of the Christian because of the mercies of God in Christ. And I know in, in my own mind, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about, well, how does this apply to me personally? But right. as Paul moves forward, he, he is not just talking about the individual Christian, but now he's going right. to start talking about how this is lived out by the whole body, by the church. Right. That's right. So, I mean, arguably, the whole, whole way along here, he's, he's not just talking to us personally as individuals. And this is um, a, a continual challenge for us as modern American people reading the scriptures, because we come to it through, a, uh, frankly, a very individualistic lens. And this was not the outlook of um, the ancient uh, Judaic culture and, indeed, of the early church, where it was a much more sense of the corporate. And that word corporate comes from, uh, you know, corpus, body, okay? It's a sense of um, together, as the people of God, how do we live? So in verses 3 through 8, and really continuing on from there, Paul now teases out what does this kind of corporate discipleship, which is to say this embodied discipleship in the body of Christ, what does that look like? And that's where the the verses pick up um, from verses 3 through 8. So take us into into verse 3. Paul, Paul starts, he says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. So look upon yourself not more highly. He's talked about arrogance previously among Gentiles looking toward Jews. And Take us into verse 3. Yeah, so not to think more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. It's a continual source of conviction for us as as we hear these words. But I think that we can, he really, by introducing the metaphor, or it's more than a metaphor, of being the body of Christ, really captures this, that we are body parts, so to speak. And that has two sides to it. On the one hand, it's a very exalting status to be. 
you are part of the body of Christ. You think of when, when Jesus says, you know, the, among people born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But then he says, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The fact that we belong to Christ, it is an exalted status that we should be sons and daughters of the king. It's a glorious, wondrous thing. But the flip side of that is to be a body part is also very humbling. So it's recognizing I am but a part of the whole. I have a role to play within, within the body, but I am not the head. That's Christ, right? Um, I, I need to keep with a, uh, a sober judgment, as Paul says, according to the measure of faith that God has given to me, recognizing I am a body part. It's a wonderful, glorious thing, but I am but a body part, and I don't want to have an outsized view of my own importance. Right, because in this one body, as Paul continues, there are there are many members. The members do not all have the same function. Verses four through five really dig into this image that Paul uses to describe the church of the body of Christ. He's the head. We are the members. I think this is a, a familiar image. We we will often refer to the church as the body of Christ, not as as jargon per se, but it is often shorthand for the church. Yeah. Take us into this image that Paul uses. We even well, we even talk about church membership, right? But right. maybe we don't get the full picture when we just say I'm a church member, as Paul's giving right. here. I think you are exactly right. We we tend to think of of membership as well. That's just you know kind of uh, uh, getting my card where now I'm able to come in, and uh, that is not the idea at all. Membership and and to be a member, it's rooted in this the sense of the body. So um, imagine if instead of becoming a member of a church, said you're going to become a limb of our church, right? Um, <laughs> that's the idea. Uh, member is really just it's a it's an older way of phrasing, um, but un- unfortunately. We've kind of uh, lost that over the years, that original sense it had of being connected to the body. And so look at this, how we, to be a Christian, to be a baptized believer, means that you are a member of the body of Christ. And what that means is you are members of Christ and one another. You belong not only to Jesus, but also to each other. And no doubt this is part of why this um, season of quarantine and of scattering, of exile, has been so poignantly painful for the people of God is because we've, we've recognized, boy, receiving God's gifts, it's been a blessing for churches that have been able to do online services and, and other extraordinary measures, but um, it's not the same because we're meant to be gathered together as the people of God, no one lives to himself, no one dies to himself, Paul's going to say in, in Romans 14. We live as the body of Christ, connected to our head, connected to Christ, but also connected to one another. It's both of those at the same time, and we don't want to lose sight of that. And so connected to Christ and one another, Paul says, we have gifts that differ. It's in this one body, but the gifts are different according to the grace given to us. And then he says, well, let's let's use them. And he, he starts digging in. So I think sometimes we talk about this as spiritual gifts. So sometimes yeah. that gets lumped into that category. And that, that can be a, a can of worms to open up. <laughs> right. We've probably got about seven time, minutes uh, here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cute. No, don't cue the music, but, but help us, help us understand what, what Paul is saying here about these gifts that differ and using them according to the grace given. Right. 
So um, it's helpful, I think, to look at the, the Greek behind that word translated as gifts. So the Greek word is charismata, from which we get charisma. And the idea is not that you've got you know, some great charisma, you're outgoing or gregarious or something like that. But it comes from the – it's rooted in the, the Greek word charis, which is the word for grace. And so these are, are gifts of God's grace. And we might make a distinction there between those spiritual gifts, as he um, unpacks it in especially 1 Corinthians 14. These are gifts of grace. So the way that the way that God's grace continues to be revealed and unfolded through his people. A good um, cross-reference here is, is 1 Peter 4.10. And um, St. Peter writes in, in that passage where he says, each of those has received the, the manifold gifts of God. Uh, and the idea is, it's like God's grace is this glorious um, posture of favor toward us, but it's only fully realized as it is refracted through his people. The light of his love gets refracted through the prism of his people so that we're able to understand more deeply what his, his grace means as we experience it and receive it through one another as those charismata, as those gracious gifts are practiced and realized in the community. In other words, I'm not going to fully understand what it means to be saved by grace until I experience the uh, patience that I receive from Carla, the um, compassion and the, the hospitality that I receive from Karen. The, you know, uh, and you can go on and on down the line, the way that you experience the generosity that I get from Kevin, and, and on and on it goes, that God's grace comes to us through people, and this is very much a, a kind of a Lutheran theme as well, that the means of grace, and part of those means are the people himself through, God, through whom God delivers his gifts. So as you say, as he goes on from there, he's going to spell out some of them, and this is not an exhaustive list, but he's at least going to point up a few of those, a few of those gifts. So, and, and as we, and we don't have enough time, we've got four minutes to, to right. talk about these briefly, uh, it seems that we, we want to look at, I think, prophecy, particularly because there is a matter there of, of how do we understand what's translated in the ESV as in proportion to our faith. And yeah. then, especially as you get toward the end of verse 8, the generosity or the, the contribution, the leading, those are described with different adjectives. So help us into these just briefly, Pastor Tinetti. Yeah, so just a couple of points. So as you mentioned, the first one, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, well, there's two problems there. One, prophecy, so like being able to foresee the future and then in proportion to our faith. So if I have a certain quantity, I'm able to have a better sense of the future. Certainly if we've been reading the newspapers, we're seeing there's not a lot of people that are very good at predicting the future right now. This is what it's talking about here. And I would say no. So um, prophecy, especially when it's used in the New Testament, has more of a sense, it's close closely aligned, although different, um, to preaching more generally, speaking forth the words of God. And maybe the um, added nuance is really applying it to the present time. So um, the distinction is made between a foreteller and a forth teller. So a foreteller, somebody who's able to predict the future, as we see with many of the Old Testament prophets, a forth teller means speaking truth to the present moment, applying God's word and his truth to our, our present circumstances. This is more the idea what what Paul is, is referring to here when he talks about prophecy. And as far as the second half of the phrase, in proportion to our faith, again, I, I feel bad, uh, Pastor Apple. I really don't mean to uh, take uh, issue with the translations, but um, 
a proportion to our faith gives you the sense that it's quantity, whereas the um, Greek phrase that he uses here is literally according to the analogy or according to the rule of faith, which is to say it's more about the quality of that prophecy or that speaking forth the word of God. Is it according to the rule of faith? And this was a, a phrase that was especially used in the early church, but the idea is, um, or we might paraphrase it as, according to the creedal faith. Okay, so the creed, the Apostles' Creed in particular, was called the analogy or the rule of faith, based off passages like here in Romans 12 and elsewhere. It's, this is the, the, the guidelines. This is the, the basic, broad outline of the faith. So if anybody is speaking forth the Word of God, let them do it according to the rule of faith. It's a quality, qualitative judgment rather than a quantitative one. It's not about how, how much faith you have. It's are you speaking it in accordance with um, the the proper teachings of the faith. Um, you mentioned then also the uh, at verse eight. So the verse seven, you've got okay. If, if service and our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, that makes sense. But verse eight, he takes a little bit of a turn. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, okay. But the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So those modifiers are a little bit unexpected. It doesn't say the one who contributes, you know, um, to to contribute well, the one who leads to lead well. But instead, um, if you contribute, do so with generosity, with a free heart. And you might um, connect this to Second Corinthians eight, you know, to be cheerful. So also doing acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, uh, with First Peter 4, I mentioned that before, Peter says there um, that the one who serves, serve with the strength that God provides. So to do acts of mercy, to serve others, to do so with the strength that God provides. It's the only way you'll do it with cheerfulness. Ultimately, if we do it in our own strength, it'll only lead to a kind of grudging resentment. And to lead, to lead with spude, is the, the Greek there, with zeal, with diligence, and to, to lead well, not in a lax kind of way and saying, well, you know, the sheep will find their way home eventually. No, to shepherd well, to, to lead God's people, to direct them to the still waters of his grace. That's your, that's your calling. And to do it zealously, to do it diligently is the way that we ought to exercise that gift. So in all of these things, and again, this is not an exhaustive list. We shouldn't do some kind of catalog from this. Okay, am I service, generosity, leading, etc.? Um, this is but a taste. It's the, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg of God's charisma, his gracious gifts given through his people. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Tinetti is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Eight. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.